Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette. Discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free. <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Greetings, listeners. You're listening to Movie Oubliette, episode 82. This is the continental-spanning podcast with me, Dan, spoilt for choice with Iconicon content in Melbourne, Australia. And me, Conrad, trying to recover from doing six panels in four days in Cambridge, UK. I don't know how you did it, Conrad. (laughs) Uh, In this podcast, we scrutinise over genre films, horror, sci-fi and fantasy because making friends with robots in deep space while tending to a vegetable garden is a fun-filled Friday night for us. (laughs) It is. Conrad. (laughs) How's it going? Pretty good, yeah. I'm just about recovered from the onslaught that was Iconicon. It was gruelling, but it was fun, wasn't it? Oh, it's great. And and after the storm subsided, there's, there's all this great <laughs> content that we missed that we weren't in panels for. I know. I'm still going through some stuff and discovering new things. So Iconicon lives on for mm. us. <laughs> Yeah, I wanted to shout out some people to look out for. So Simple Tricks and Nonsense, so Newt and Johnny, uh, the costume cosplay extraordinaires. Uh, And and special Mm. thanks also to Analog Toys, Tony and uh, Matt from Reclaimers Vintage Toys. Um, And, and of of course, Retro Blasting for organizing this extraordinary event. Yes, and being so welcoming and so supportive of us and all the other channels participating. They were so good in promoting us and bigging us up and Mm -hmm. being kind to us. I spent most of it blushing, to be honest. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you had, you had a great time in, in the the Bond panel with um with Dante from <laughs> Infinity Equation podcast and the other yeah. panelists. Yeah, Matt from Matt's movies. Yeah, it was really good. Yeah, we had a Pierce Brosnan lover and a Roger Moore lover and a <laughs> Sean Connery lover, and then myself and Michael Team Dalton. <laughs> it was good fun. It was yes. really good fun. Yes. So yeah. we've had a bit of attention. On the podcast, Conrad, anything in our mailbag? Well, it's funny you should say that because we have gained several patrons. So I wanted to do a quick shout out to them. Hello to Eddie and Scott and Matt and Grindhead Jim, Jody from Gen X Toys Geeks, April, Brian, Kevin, Carl and Scuba Pete. Oh, <laughs> really great to have you on board as patrons. We appreciate the support. It, it really helps us out. Welcome to the the cult. <laughs> no. Yes. <laughs> we also have a new review on iTunes. It's titled I've been consigned to the oubliette forever. Oh. <laughs> it's five stars and it says Movie Oubliette is simply a joy to listen to. Dan and Conrad have such wonderful chemistry and give me great insight into the obscure films I love, the ones I've never heard of, and those I need to see for myself. I don't listen to very many podcasts, as I find most hosts lack charisma, but these two have it in spades. 
I would recommend this to any film fan. They review the films others tend to forget, but I never forget to come back for every new episode. Check it out. And that's from Patrick in the USA. Oh, wow. I'm blushing. <laughs> I know. Isn't that amazing? That's really kind, Patrick. It's great to know that you're out there listening to us. Yes. Yeah. Yes, it is. <laughs> And on our socials, we heard from Joe Lipsit of the Horror Queers on Leviathan. Uh-huh. <laughs> Hello, Joe. Not surprisingly, being uh, an aquatic horror movie, he quite liked it. So he said, really great episode, folks. It makes me sad because I've grown to love Leviathan over the years, but I can't contest any of your points about its weaknesses. It's a bit of a mess but a mess I adore nonetheless. <laughs> mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. It's almost like a guilty pleasure. I just, I know it's bad, but it's just so enjoyable. <laughs> <laughs> Except for Ernie Hudson, which Ancient Sword Rage commented on his premature death at the end mm-hmm. of the movie. Yes. Well, not premature, just completely unnecessary. Oh. And he said, surely he could have whipped out some ghost-busting equipment and survived. Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Definitely. We also heard from Paul Anderson, who said, Stan Winston's studios always knocked it out of the park. Of all the watery films which came out at this time, this was my favourite. It has higher production quality than Deep Star 6 and less preachy and worthy than The Abyss. It was the perfect popcorn sci-fi horror. It may be worth looking at underwater as a worthy successor to this limited aquatic horror theme. Mm, Yeah, yeah. I would love to check out Underwater. And I have yet to see uh, Deep Star 6 as well, so might watch them back to back. Oh, wow. Deep Star 6 I did revisit in preparation for that pod, and oh my. (laughs) Oh, okay. I can see what he means about production value. Everything in that film wobbles. It's really funny. (laughs) We also heard from Serge of Cold Crash Pictures. Hello, Serge. Oh, hey, Serge. And he said, Leviathan steals so brazenly from the abyss, alien and the thing, that I'm almost sort of impressed. And when you're stealing (laughs) from sources that good, it's not like it's going to be a bad watch, in my humble opinion, but it's still the poster child for derivative sci-fi horror of the 1980s. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah, still loved it, though. And finally, from somebody who's working through our back catalogue, Wicked Person, who we saw commenting during Iconicon. Hello, Wicked Person. And he's obviously got to the Dragon Slayer episode, and he said, Perhaps Dragon Slayer was plotted by Ryan Johnson. All expectations are subverted by being replaced with utterly unsatisfying alternatives. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Accurate. <laughs> I'm detecting not a fan of The Last Jedi. Oh, uh, yeah. But oh, could be wrong. Could be wrong. But yes, loads of mailbag, especially around Iconicon. We love hearing from you. It's been really fun reading all of your comments and your messages. So do keep them coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And email us at movie.oubliet at gmail.com if you want to be more anonymous. Yes. Share some secrets. <laughs> <laughs> Well, today, Conrad, what are we discussing? Well, I don't know. I'll just uh, mooch on over to the old oubliette. Oh, oh my. It's quite verdant in here for a change. Oh, a biodome in space. Yeah, there's bunny rabbits. and Oh, there's a falcon. Whoa! <laughs> wow. Where did that come from? Aren't you in space? <laughs> <laughs> it's very scary. Oh, it's, it's got a film in its beak. Okay, I'm coming back. Okay. <laughs> Look out, Huey. 
Oh, wasn't expecting that. Oh, my. Yes, sir. What do you have? Well, it appears that the uh, Random Falcon gave me a copy of Silent Running, a 1972 environmental-themed American post-apocalyptic science fiction film, the directorial debut of Douglas Trumbull, the special effects genius, and starring Bruce Stern, Cliff Potts, Ron Rifkin, and Jesse Vint. Oh, okay. Yeah. When I researched this film, I discovered that Bruce Stern is Laura Dern's father. I did not know that. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, on the commentary for the film, he talks about, yes, when I was visiting Laura on the set of Jurassic Park, and you think, wow. <laughs> oh, wow. Nepotism. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to quickly mention that this is a patron's choice. So thank you to Matt Fisher for suggesting this film. Yes. Conrad, what happens in Silent Running? Well, in the not too distant future, Earth has become a homogenous, featureless utopia with no hunger or war and jobs for all, but at a price. The planet no longer supports any kind of plant or animal life, except humans, for some reason. What's left of our world's forests and wildlife is maintained on geodesic domes attached to spacecraft orbiting Saturn, for some reason, <laughs> until the government decides to not only abandon them, but destroy them with nukes from orbit, for some reason. Uh-huh. Nature-loving, bunny-hugging, gentle loner Freeman Lowell cannot come to terms with the imminent destruction of the last trees in the universe, so murders all of his crewmates and hijacks the ship, alone and adrift in the endless void of space, with only three robot drones, he christens Huey, Louie and Dewey, our hero battles loneliness, guilt and withering plants as he tries to avoid the other ships who are in hot pursuit. Can he keep on running silently and silent running? Find out. Yes, after the break. And we're back to talk about Silent Running, the 1972 sci-fi movie starring Bruce Dern. Dan, had you seen this masterpiece before? No, I have not <laughs> seen it uh, before. Uh, when I watched it, like your synopsis alluded to, I had a lot of questions mm. watching this movie. Yeah, so it's a film with environmental themes and it comes around the time, late 60s, early 70s, where this was really taking hold in popular culture. The first Earth Day had taken place on April 22nd, 1970, with teaching events and community cleanups and marches and so on. So mm -hmm. it's about the time that people were starting to think about this and so it was feeding into literature and starting to crop up in film. But I think it's fair to say that the understanding of ecological issues was quite naive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the whole environmental aspect of this film came across very preachy to me mm. and very sort of hippie preachy, so to speak. <laughs> like he appeared as a kind of a Jesus Noah figure in his cloak that he just wears in space for some reason and there are just <laughs> random animals bouncing around rabbits and lizards and 
falcons and crickets. <laughs> you could hear crickets at some like what? I don't understand what is happening here. What is this? Is this a self-contained ecosystem? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I don't really get it. And like, are the falcons eating the rabbits? Like, what's happening here? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, the practicality of it begs a few questions, doesn't it? Really, I think there are different ecosystems in each biodome. Right. So I think at one point they're talking about yeah, let's eject the desert biodome or whatever. Yeah. So I think there's a different self-contained ecosystem in each one. Right. Okay. Yeah. And and just science-wise, it's a lot of questionable things going on. Like when he's mm. out in space, <laughs> he's just walking around like there's gravity. Yeah. I mean, what? <laughs> yeah, I know. It does have the old gravity problem, which is that, you know, don't ask. There's just gravity everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, at least in 2001, they explain it with the whole central pedal, like yeah. revolving spacecraft, which you see in modern films as well. But I mean, out in space, just walking along, like in what looks like a wetsuit as well. Like, what, <laughs> what sort of protection is this giving you out in the vacuum of space? Well, yeah, I know. It raises a lot of questions. I mean, fundamentally, the problem, as I said, it's quite naive. It's the Joni Mitchell paved paradise and put up a parking lot mm -hmm. understanding of what's happening to the Earth. So the idea is that the whole thing is just a flat, featureless monoclimate. It's like the same temperature everywhere and there are no hills or valleys. It's just they've just tarmacked the world. Yeah. Now, in reality, we would all be dead. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We cannot survive without trees. So the premise doesn't work. And as to why you would then preserve what's left of the ecology of the Earth in biodomes, in orbit, in space stations, and then suddenly decide you don't want them anymore and, and nuke them. Yeah, I, I, didn't, I didn't understand that. I had no idea what what was their purpose in the first place. Where were they going? Were they just going to another planet that had the same atmosphere as Earth and just, you know, landing the dome and just opening it up and going, let's hope for the best. Like, well, <laughs> I, I don't understand the motives of the spaceships. Like, where were they going? And why did they decide to just blow the domes up? Like, aren't these like the last remnants of life on Earth? Like, yeah. why blow them up? I have no idea. They just talk about putting the ships back into commercial service. The rest of our heroes, crewmates, don't give a fig about the ecology at all. They just find the whole thing a tedious assignment and they can't wait to blow them up and go back home. Yeah, It's not as though it's a treasured resource except to Bruce Stern in his bathrobe. Who looks just like a, a maniac. I mean, he's <laughs> not likable as a protagonist for this film. Like, I didn't want him to succeed. And why did they decide to kill off all the characters within the first 30 minutes of the film? And then, then we're left with the most unlikable character for an hour. And then, spoilers, he just, like, blows himself up at the end anyway. So... I don't understand. No. And yes, the characterization is interesting. Now, Bruce Dern, quite often, or at least most of the times I've come across him, he's playing wild-eyed villains and crazed loners. Like he was quite famously a terrorist in a film called Black Sunday, where he wanted to pilot a blimp containing explosives into the Super Bowl and kill as many people as possible. Uh -huh. Yeah, that was 1977. And even when he's in comedic things like Joe Dante movies, like we've seen him in The Hole. The Hole, yes. As a 
crazy old man, basically. So he tends to play that kind of character. So to see him getting increasingly wide-eyed as the domes are exploding and then murdering everyone. I know. And you're supposed to find him a sympathetic figure? Does that I know. work? I don't think it works, it does doesn't, it? It doesn't, it doesn't. And watching the behind the scenes as well, the director goes on to say he wanted to inject warmth, emotional warmth in this character of... Freeman Lowell. And I just thought, this guy's a raging lunatic. Like, he's talking to robots. He's killing his entire crew. He's dumping cargo into space. Like, who is this man? Yeah. To add to that, probably the most likable characters in the film are Huey, Louie and Dewey, the three drones that he christens, reprograms and has as his companions. I think Douglas Trumbull explained to Bruce Dern that essentially the way he should think about it is it's a man alone in the Sierra Desert with three dogs. Mm -hmm. That was kind of the relationship he was going for. But then he runs over one of them. Yeah. And I can't forgive him for running over one of them. He does try to repair it, but then he says at the end of the movie that he's going to leave one of them tending the garden, floating off into space. Yeah. And the other one that he damaged, he says, well, you're not working well enough, so you'll have to stay with me and get blown up as I commit suicide. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Screw you. Yeah. Just leave him on the dome. He could have just wandered around and kept the other one company. What are you doing? Exactly. What a exactly. monster. I'm I know. Sorry. I know. <laughs> The drones, as they're referred to, uh, the robots. Hmm. I did like the look of them. Yeah. And I did like the fact that Douglas Trumbull was going for something that didn't represent a human at all. So he didn't want to put a face or any eyes or anything. I did find them almost like they were walking toasters. Like, yeah. he was talking to them. They weren't really emoting. No. Like, I, I can see how this has influenced movies like Star Wars. Yes. And for George Lucas to go, hmm, maybe we should make them, you know, have some sort of any sort of emotion, where it be a red eye or for it to beep and squeal, anything yes. is some sort of characterization. Because the drones, they were a little bit two-dimensional. And I did not really understand their intelligence either. Like, they seem to pick up playing cards, fine. Yeah. But I don't really understand what the, the level of intelligence. Yeah, I don't either. I mean, he reprograms them to play cards with him. And sometimes you see them doing things that are a little bit anthropomorphized. I'm not sure I'm never going to get that word out right, to be honest. <laughs> um, like, you know, tapping their foot while he's reprogramming them sure and there are a few cute moments here and there but by and large yeah they are walking toasters and i do like the way that they were done it's very clever it's fascinating actually uh because i was trying to figure it out because i thought there's no way this is actually a mechanical entity no and i just thought how is a little person in there i don't understand where their legs are going mm. or where their arms are going like it was too wide for a person to fit in there but yeah, the behind the scenes was like, that's genius. Yeah, it's really clever, isn't it? So it's three bilateral amputees or, or yeah. double amputees. So yeah, they're all people who lack legs, either because of a condition that they were born with or because, you know, this is the early 70s. I think a few of them were Vietnam veterans who lost their legs uh, during that conflict. Sure. And so, yeah, they're just walking around 
on their hands because that's the way that they've learned to get around now with these costumes on them and they just had to make sure that they were as light as possible i think they're about 20 pounds because they made use of this new technology of the early 70s which was vacuformed plastic mm. so it's just these very very light shells with a bit of detailing on and the robot arms on the front and then they would just walk around on them and it looks really peculiar and because it's not a body form that you're accustomed to you don't immediately pick it out as being human so yeah it does yeah. fool the eye i heard that he got inspired by watching the movie freaks right yes. uh, which does feature um sort of Oddly shaped humans. Yeah, it's a little bit exploitive, I think. It is. Looking back yes. on it. Yeah, it's a bit of a hard watch, that movie. Yeah. I did also hear that the actors playing the drones, they're all quite young 15, 17, 16, and one 20 year old. Wow. So I guess they have to be pretty. I mean, it's physically demanding just walking on your arms. I, I guess they're used to it. Yeah. Yeah, it would have been tough. Could they even see? in there is it just darkness i hope so yeah i'm hoping that one of the panels has actually got a grill in there somewhere i'm hoping that that's yeah how it works yeah i was <laughs> disappointed though because there, for some reason there wasn't any sound design no that accompanied their movements it was just mainly silence yeah i don't know whether that was a conscious choice or a budget choice but it just felt awkward to me not hearing a robot make any sound. <laughs> no, it is a shame. And I think it's one area where Ben Burt on the Star Wars movies. I mean, I do know that George Lucas was aware of this movie, saw the drones and told Douglas Trumbull, wow, this is really interesting. I think I should do something like this for Star Wars. And that's probably where R2-D2 mm. got some inspiration from. And he yes. has a very distinctive sound to him and it gives him a lot of character and a lot of life. It does. Yeah. It does. Exactly. Um, it is interesting talking about where this film fits in the oeuvre of sci-fi films. So this came between 2001 and Star Wars. And the director, Douglas Trimble, did the photographic effects for 2001. Yes. And also went on to do effects for Andromeda Strain. Yes. A, a link there. It's Star Trek, the motion picture, and Blade Runner. So, like, visually the film looks great. Yeah. The model work, incredible, I think. They use front projection. Yeah. So projected Saturn and the stars on a screen behind the actors in the set. So they didn't have to do any optical, like green or blue screen stuff. So I don't know. I thought it looked pretty majestic, all those shots of the spaceship from space. Yeah, some of them don't hold up too well. Like there's a shot, because they weren't doing optical compositing, there was a shot where the cargo is falling away from the ship and actually they're sort of transparent. You can see through them and you can see the one that's supposed to be behind the other one through the other one. So it's... Oh, right. I didn't notice that. Yeah, some of it's a little bit ropey and the model... I mean, it was 25 feet long, the model of the spaceship. Mm. So it was as detailed as it could possibly be. And I think they were using something like 800 model tank toys that they'd kit bashed and were gluing little pieces all oh, over it. Right. So it took a lot of effort to do. I think, to be honest, the way that it's lit and shot, it still looks like a model. To me, it still looks quite small. Oh, really? I was really impressed by it. I think it holds up. Yeah. I thought that certainly the front projection works a lot better than optical compositing of the time. Mm. I think that holds up yeah. really well. Yeah. So the spaceship was based on 
a Japanese tower in Osaka, apparently, or the tower itself, and then the domes were kind of based on some botanical garden in Missouri or something? That's right, yeah. So he got inspiration from the 1970 Expo in Osaka, Japan, that he visited, and it had these towers with geodesic domes at different levels. Oh, didn't they? Oh, right. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I have a booklet in the Blu-ray that I have that shows the domes on this thing, and you could, he took a picture of it. It's from Douglas Trumbull's personal collection, so you could see him gathering inspiration for all of these things. Mm. Mm. So, yeah. So a, a lot went into the production design and the execution and, mm. and one thing that I think is particularly interesting is where they filmed it so they filmed it on an aircraft carrier mm. that was being decommissioned yes. and it actually was the Valley Forge I know which is amazing I, I don't know why they kept the name though because I mean the, <laughs> the exterior shot of the spacecraft is the model yeah so is this like some sort of like homage to the original Valley Forge like I don't <laughs> I don't really understand. Why don't they call it the, I don't know, some stupid sci-fi name, like the Jupiter 6 or something. I don't know. I think actually it's a nature reserve, so they thought that they would just keep it. And all the rest of the ships, like the Berkshire, they're all named after nature reserves. Oh, so okay. Oh, the environmental aspect. It sort of ends up being thematically apt at the same time. Yeah, they had this this whole ship to themselves, this enormous thing, and they just retrofitted areas of it inside, repainted, widened the doors, as long as they didn't remove any steel because it was going to be cut up for scrap. Mm. They could do whatever they wanted to it. And it brought an awful lot of production value. And I think when you think that people thought that both Star Wars and particularly Alien created this sort of dingy, industrial, realistic, lived-in environment for science fiction rather than the clean plastic surfaces of yesteryear, and particularly 2001. Mm. And it was achieved on Alien by essentially kit-bashing <laughs> full-size, breaking up airplanes and sort of gluing bits of TVs and stuff to the walls, uh -huh. that this movie achieved the same effect just practically in 1972, and it predates all of those movies. And it does give you the sense of them being in a real working environment mm. in space. Yeah, yeah. I'm reminded of the, the movie Outland that we did with um, Michael French. Yeah. So, yeah, that sort of gritty, industrial, like, working class environment. Mm. Is this the first movie to really portray that on film? I think it quite possibly could be because everybody thinks that this lived in universe came from Star Wars and I'm I'm not sure necessarily that it does entirely I think Silent Running could probably mm. take the credit for some of that yeah yeah for sure going back to the domes briefly <laughs> <laughs> although the garden interior kind of didn't make any sense. I, I was impressed by how it looked and watching the behind the scenes, it's pretty well done. Like it was just shot in an aircraft hangar. Yeah. Um, with again, the front projection on the back wall behind the set and actors and they just hide plants. Yeah. Amazing. It looks convincing to me. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. And like the scene where Bruce Stern is swimming in a lake or something, it's just yeah. like a kid's paddling pool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> And it was freezing cold, apparently. <laughs> yeah. Because they couldn't afford heat. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was a really low-budget movie. It came out of a very specific movement in the late 60s and early 70s. So it's all driven by the success of 
Easy Rider, the independent mm. film in 1969. And it's, you know, after the studio system has kind of broken down and classical Hollywood is not succeeding anymore. And then all of a sudden, this little movie made for sort of $300,000 makes huge bank at the box office because it captured the cultural times, you know, and people could really relate to it. So Universal said, let's make five $1 million movies with independent filmmakers and give them complete control and see what kind of return on our investment we get. And Silent Running was one of them. Mm. It cost $1.35 million in the end. Mm-hmm. Douglas Trumbull was a first-time director, but it also yielded films by Dennis Hopper again, and Peter Fonda directed a movie, and a young man called George Lucas directed a movie called American Graffiti, which was probably the most successful of, course. of the bunch, right. and gave him the opportunity to do a little thing called Star Wars. Yeah. Yeah, so it came from that <laughs> fertile ground, but very low-budget movie, so they were having to be quite ingenious. Yeah, yeah. I think set-wise, prop-wise, just visually, they did very well Yeah, with that budget. So it's an interesting stepping stone from the very austere, serious, mind-blowing, cosmic existentialism of 2001 to the space lasers, exciting adventure of Star Wars. But I'm not sure how well it stands as a milestone between the two. Yeah, Mark Kermode famously prefers this to 2001. I think it's less embellished. Yeah, like it's not a visual masterpiece like 2001, and it hasn't got a huge overarching existential. Well, kind of has an existential arc, but I think it's muddled mm-hmm. in this movie. Things happen, and you're not even sure why. I almost wanted it to be more explained. Like, I didn't even realize why he was dumping cargo. I didn't even realize he was going through some sort of asteroid field. Things were just happening, and then (laughs) it ended, and I just don't know what happened. Like, even his bloody leg, I don't even really recall. I think the guy hits him with a spade at some point. Yeah. But you didn't really see it. Like, there were a lot of things that weren't really explained or shown. Yeah. And I just felt confused. And detached yes, as well. Yes, I remember you texted me after you finished and said, well, that happened. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I don't know. I think there are a lot of things I think don't work with this movie in terms of, yeah, the killing all the characters at the start and not having a very likable protagonist and also the drones not being that emotive in terms of anything. But the main problem is I don't know what the motive is. What what was his motive after that? Where was he going? Just drifting forever in space? Yeah, I think so. Because there was never a sense that they had any lack of resources. So there's no worry about running out of oxygen. Mm. There's no worry about running out of sunlight even, which is strange. I mean, that whole sequence where... The plants are dying and he can't figure out why. I know. Is his specialism botany? Isn't he supposed to be the one that looks after I know. the plants and he doesn't know that they need light? Yeah. I mean, isn't it like 101 botany? Like plants need three things. Light, dirt, water. Yeah. Uh, Even I know like, that. And I kill everything that comes into this house. I'm not green-fingered at all, but even yeah. I know that putting them in a dark room is not going to work. Yeah. So I do feel like the hour after killing the crew, there's almost no point to it. It's very directionless. Yeah. 
It's a freewheeling, free love and free excitement of the 70s. He is a free man after all. It's in his name. Yes. So he's just (laughs) cutting loose from the man and setting out through the rings of Saturn, destination unknown. Mm -hmm. And rather Mm -hmm. than face up to the consequences of his actions, he kills himself. Yeah. Which is kind of cowardly and pointless, but I guess he's trying to deflect attention from the dome that's still floating out there. He's trying to give off the impression that it's being destroyed and there's no need to look for it. Right. Although why they would, I don't know. Because right. they didn't care about it. So Yeah. Well, I mean, it's interesting hearing the sort of original treatment of the script. And he was actually supposed to be contacted by aliens. Yes. Which, I I don't know, I think I would have liked to see that interaction. Yeah. Well, it would have had a point then, wouldn't it? Mm. I don't know why they would contact him. You know, sort of like Star Trek Four. Yeah. Alien turns up, only wants to talk to the whales. Maybe it's <laughs> they appreciate his love of forests. Tree-loving aliens like E.T., because E.T. only showed up here just to collect plants, didn't he? Mm. So maybe that's what it is. But at least it would have been something yeah. for the climax. yeah. The, the last hour is unclear where it's going, and then it just ends, ends with him blowing himself up. Yeah. It, it's not a great conclusion. No, although the final shot is famous. The image of the lonely robot tending this garden floating off into space forever has haunted a whole generation of moviegoers and sci-fi lovers. Mm. I think it's fair to say, and I think you can see the influence of that. I mean, certainly Wally patiently carrying on with trying to tidy up the Earth single-handedly after humans have deserted it is a clear reference to that. And it's just the image of this cute little diminutive automaton Mm. patiently doing a task that you know is futile because the scale of it is just entirely beyond them. Mm. I think immediately pulls at the heart strings and leaves you with this bittersweet glow as the film ends but Mm. still can't surmount the hour and a half that you've gone through (laughs) to get to that final shot. I mean I will commend this film for first off visuals the depiction of spacecraft in space that isn't you know a flashy white sleek looking craft and also That genre of sci-fi with a lonely character in space, like contemplating and and questioning his or her existence. Like, I don't think that had come... I mean, apart from 2001, I don't think that had really been portrayed on film before. And there's no doubt that this would have influenced so many other films. This is definitely very pioneering and definitely a stepping stone or a transition period to other better films (laughs) yes yeah i think so yeah i think it was certainly opened people's eyes to what was possible in the sci-fi arena in a lot of ways and because it's douglas trumbull yes visually it looks good even despite his limited resources it does look good there are a few things in the human parts of the movie that don't look good like there are some out of focus shots yeah this movie there are like even his eulogy scene where he's eulogizing over his dead crewmate And it's out of focus for the entire shot until he leans forward to stand up. And then you go, oh, yeah, that's where the focal point is. You missed it. So there's some clumsiness in it, but it's, you know, it's a low budget. And apparently they only took one or two takes of every scene. Mm, Yeah, I can imagine that's why there are sort of missing parts and more exciting moments of the film where I just don't know what's going on. And they probably just forgot to have a 
a cutaway here or like a connecting shot here or a close-up here. Yeah. It's very unclear what's going on. Yeah. Now it's time for Random Trivia. So, Dan, what fascinating piece of trivia have you cultivated on the far side of Saturn today? So, the director of this film, Douglas Trumbull, has quite a famous father. So, Don Trumbull, who worked on The Wizard of Oz, helping uh, with rigging of the flying monkeys. Oh, wow. And then changed his career to work with the aerospace industry. So, Douglas asked his father to help out with this movie. So, he did assist with designing the drones and and that robot arm appendage that the drones had. And he also, I didn't realize this, but went on to build photographic equipment for Star Wars. Oh, wow. very accomplished engineer, I guess. Yeah, obviously. And just what you needed back in those days when everything was achieved practically yes. and through engineering ingenuity. So, yeah. Yeah, a very talented family. <laughs> yeah. And that's our trivia. Yes. Shall we talk about the music? Yes. The music is by a man called... Peter Schickler? Schickley? Schickley? Yeah. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. And Douglas Trumbull was attracted to him because of his arrangements of Joan Baez albums, who is a very well-renowned and accomplished folk artist and environmental activist of the period. But it was the orchestral arrangements of those albums that Douglas was particularly interested in. So Mm -hmm. he hired him for that. And I think... Joan Baez came along to do a couple of songs later, not through that connection, oddly enough. He actually had to chase her down in an airport because he couldn't contact her. (laughs) It's quite a mixture of different styles, I found. Yeah, it really is. Uh, I mean, the the reveal of the spacecraft, it's very epic and fanfare-y, lots of brass. Hmm. Did sound very dry. Yes. So it sounds like they're just playing in a lounge room or something. Uh, It sounds very TV music to me. Yeah. didn't sound as cinematic as it could have sounded. No, I think it's a small number of players in a very small space, which you can understand. I mean, at least they don't do the thing they did in the 80s, which is where they doubled them up and put a massive digital reverb on them to try and make it sound bigger than it actually was. I don't mind that. <laughs> no, but you go from that to things that are all, almost sort of prog rocky, yeah. because there's bass guitar yeah, there's sometimes some as well. Yeah. And some interesting synth arrangements too towards the end, really sort of strange cacophonous noises. So there's some experimental stuff too. Yeah, yeah, very kind of psychedelic rock in in places. Yeah, it's not terribly cohesive, but it kind of works. It never threw me out of the picture, I wouldn't say. Yeah, but I mean, we have to say it. What threw me out of the picture was (laughs) bloody Joan Baez warbling (laughs) along in, in those montage scenes. God. Yeah. Worst cue ever. Yes. Like, worst and it really solidified the hippie aspect of the environmental theme and it just made it cringy (laughs) and cheesy and i just wanted it to stop yes it was inches away from parody wasn't it and obviously it was done in complete innocence in 1972 but if the simpsons did a piss take of homer walking through nature this is how i would expect it to look (laughs) and sound (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. With bunnies and tortoises running around. It's like, 
come on, what is this? Yeah, and Joan Baez warbling about flowers in her hair and children, children running in the sun. And, yeah, <laughs> I know. It was just, oh, this is too much. That did tear me out of the movie completely, I have to oh, say. Awful. And you hear it three times as well. It's just like, it's a never-ending nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just when you think it's over, you can hear her twinkling back in, can't you? It's like, oh, no, yeah. no, Joan, uh, please. I don't know. I did hear that the director was going for the... Uh, Let's sell a hit single with this song. Yeah. I'm sure maybe in the 70s this was a very pumping, trendy <laughs> style of music, but gosh, it's definitely aged a bit. Yeah, just slightly. All it needs is a flute solo, for God's sake. It's, oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think Easy Rider had a, a hit soundtrack, but I think that was probably edgier, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. very misplaced. Not big on 70s adult contemporary and folk music myself, so... Well, yeah, not in a scene where a guy is tending to vegetables and bunnies are hopping around. (laughs) In his bathrobe. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) After murdering people, Mm. yeah. Doesn't work. Doesn't, really doesn't. Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Mobley Awards. It's the Movie Awards. It's where we present our favourite dome-exploding parts of the film in a number of horticulturally pleasing categories. Best quote. My favourite quote comes from when Freeman Lowell is discovered by the Berkshire and the captain comes over the radio to say you're rescued and Freeman says, How did you find me? Why did you even try? I thought, yeah. That's not creepy. That's not the sort of response you want. (laughs) No. (laughs) Yeah, a little bit disturbing. But yeah, I I thought it was a good summation of the movie, really. But there we go. I didn't have a favourite quote. I didn't find anything that appealing dialogue-wise. It was very, I don't know, nothing stood out to me. No, it's quite trite. I mean, it's like right at the end of the movie where he's about to send the geodesic dome with the one remaining robot out into space forever. And Mm. he just says, tells his story about, once I put a message in a bottle and I set it out to sea and I never know if anybody found it. That's great. (laughs) Yes, that's how that works. It's not particularly poignant. It's like the most bland vanilla version of a metaphor for yeah. what he's about to do. Yeah. Best hair or costume. So I'm going to pick the uh, the jumpsuits, the corduroy jumpsuits that they're wearing. Very mm. very seventies. But I am impressed because they were literally ski outfits that they'd just yeah. taken off the rack and and slightly modified, added the patches. Uh, so yeah, a good piece of uh, low cost costuming. Yeah. Um, but they kind of looked ridiculous because they are cord. Yeah. I know. I can't imagine what the sound was like on set because corduroy is not the quietest of oh, fabrics. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot more successful than uh, Lowell's spacesuit, which is quite clearly a wetsuit and a bicycle helmet. It's laughably bad. It's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, he looks like he's just walking around on a set. Yeah. Just, there's no attempt, not a single attempt to make it look like it was in space. <laughs> no, or anything other than a wetsuit. Yeah. So when yeah. the Apollo program is already well in progress by now, 
And this is what we're faced with. Yeah, it just looked a bit silly. Yeah. Most 70s moment. Without doubt, the most 70s thing about this movie is Joan Baez's vibrato. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Every bloody syllable full strength vibrato and it's not just like a subtle vibrato that's just wavering by a few mm. you know micro yeah. points of a percentage she's like wavering whole tones here yes. every single bloody yeah. syllable and it, it's it's a style I don't mean to be rude about a clearly a very accomplished and well thought of folk singer, but yes. that is a style of singing that has not aged well. No, it has not. It grates. Yes. <laughs> Favourite scene! I've already mentioned that I did really love the model work in this. So all the exterior shots mm. with the front projection and the models and just really majestic looking i was sold by how it looked i didn't think it looked like models and yeah it's it's uh definitely aged well i think yeah i think that's a good pick and i think it was definitely a good choice even if it were just for economic reasons i think it actually stands up a lot better than some of the other compositing work from the era so mm, yeah yeah and just a general like concept design of the spacecraft as well it's just nothing i'd ever seen before mm-hmm. so you know kudos for creativity yeah definitely favorite scene for you my favorite scene i think uh, probably is one that people remember the most which is the poker game with huey and dewey uh-huh. and uh, specifically the moment when one of the robots shows the other robot his hand and it's sort of like a conspirational moment between the two of uh-huh. them yeah and apparently that was entirely created in editing by the movie's editor Aaron Stell. Oh wow. It was not scripted and it was not uh, Douglas Trumbull's intention at all. They just shot various different movements of the cards up down left right and in the editing suite Aaron just spotted that he could have the cards turn and the thing tilt towards him and yeah. Oh. It's entirely editorially created that moment and it's probably one of the most famous moments in the film. Right. Most cliché sci-fi moment. Mine is obvious, it is the unexplained and ubiquitous gravity. Just gravity everywhere. Yeah. And I have no idea how it was achieved. They were just walking and everything was fine. So Mm. even outside, which is amazing. Yeah, even outside. I don't get it. How about you? My my cliche, I think it's it's become a cliche, but just the expected usage or, or the staple of robots that just do menial labor they're just there doing all the odd jobs and cleaning the floor and you know welding doors and stuff and it's just you just expect it now in sci-fi yeah best special effect the go-kart buggy things were quite cool i mean i've never really seen that before and how agile they were like they were you know getting air oh yeah it would have been fun to to ride in one of those. Yeah, definitely. You can tell that he's having fun with it, although he has too much fun with it because he runs over poor oh, Dewey or Huey yeah. or whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whichever one it is. In the behind the yeah. scenes, though, uh, the director explains that they're barely held together. They're just made out of, again, the vacuum injection plastic and plywood yeah. and like a lawnmower engine. So... 
Yeah, <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it's a ride-on lawnmower, but wow, that thing's got speed. Yeah, pretty zippy. Yeah, you can mow your lawn pretty fast in America, apparently, in the <laughs> 70s. Wow. Yeah. How are you for effect? For me, it was the front projection again, but I was specifically thinking of all the biodome scenes because yeah. it never occurred to me that the geodesic dome and the stars you could see behind him weren't there. I just assumed it was a set piece and a cyclorama with just some fairy lights on it or something. Right. It never occurred to me that all of that was just back projection, uh, front projection rather. Again, stealing a technique that was used on 2001 for all of the ape scenes at the beginning of the movie. Right, right, right. Favourite sound effect. I was surprised to hear when the domes were being jettisoned the sound of uh, what to me sounded like the noise that you get when you do a strike when you're bowling and i'm not quite oh, sure why that the, happened the ping sound yes yes yeah i mean obviously there shouldn't be any sound because it's space but well. i was just startled instead of just like the usual thrusting white noise sort of sounds all of a sudden there was this bowling strike noise yeah. on the soundtrack i noticed thought, that oh, too. Okay. I, I couldn't pick it but it did sound very familiar yeah very odd how about you? Well, my sound is the, the following sound after the bowling strike, which to me sounded yeah. like machines screaming because it was just like distorted screaming. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know yeah. what it was, but wow, that's uh, ear piercing. Most funniest, funniest moment. moment. So you mentioned uh, the robots, the, the drones being kind of the best part. I don't know whether they were the best part, but I did find the moments where he was talking to them a little hilarious because there wasn't much uh, in terms of response from the from the drones. No. There was a flap uh, yeah. and like a, a little piece of mechanical something and then that was it. And oh, I kind of thought that was really funny to me. <laughs> really? Oh, you were laughing at him talking to the walking toasters. Yes, yes, talking uh. to a, a metal flap. Like, I don't know. <laughs> he was lonely. He yeah, was, it is, sure. <laughs> it is a bit odd. How about you for funniest? It, well, it's it's so obvious, but it just the, the moment that he's wandering around in a bathrobe surrounded by bunnies. And I think it was, it was the moment when a falcon landed on his arm that I just uh, lost it. Because yeah. I thought, this is ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> and that's our Moobleys. It is. Hi, this is Manu Entereme, Icheb from Star Trek Voyager, and Billy from One Tree Hill, and you're listening to Movie Oubliette. It's final verdict time. Should Silent Running be released to the stars to be loved by humanity, or should it be pummeled with a shovel and buried in the lost garden of the dark Oubliette, never to be talked about again? (laughs) Conrad, (laughs) silent running, final thought. Well, this one was suggested by our patron, Matt Fisher. Thanks, Matt. Uh, And I'm sure he probably has very warm feelings towards this movie. I know a lot of people do. The highly regarded critic, Mark Kermode, it's one of his favourite movies. And I do recognise that it's a well-executed movie for the budget. Some of the visuals are amazing because it's Doug Trumbull. And it is an important stepping stone between the serious sci-fi of Kubrick to the fun sci-fi of uh, Star Wars. 
But I have to say, not a lot happens in this movie, and it doesn't really do much. I mean, I don't. That's not essential for a movie to work. It could just be like a mood piece, but it's not a particularly interesting mood either. And the central character, I think, you're supposed to empathise with him, but. Viewed from the distance of forty years, he just looks like a psychopath to me, <laughs> who murders people for no reason, and worst of all, runs over a robot, which was the only cute thing left in the movie. So, I I just came away from it feeling sorry for the robots and sorry that I'd spent an hour and a half watching it. So, I recognise it's important. I know it's an important movie. I didn't hate it, but I was just kind of bored, and I wouldn't recommend it to people unless they're really hardcore sci-fi lovers and they want to see an important stepping stone in the development of the genre. But otherwise, I'm quite happy for this silent film to remain silent and run. Frankly, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, the the title of Silent Running was never explained. I mean, are we supposed to know that this is some sort of submarine maneuver that they used in the war. I didn't know that. Oh, now I only think of the Mike and the Mechanics song from the 80s, Silent Running. Oh. Which you've probably I not, never heard. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's a huge hit in the UK. Yeah. No, I, I didn't know that either, and he never references it. But then, I mean, movies where they reference the title of the movie are a bit cheesy, to be honest. So Yeah. It's fair enough, but yeah. Your final verdict, Dan? I agree with everything you've said. I don't think as a movie uh, it works plot-wise and character-wise, but I cannot disregard how sort of influential this movie has been uh, in terms of the visual style of sci-fi and and, um, portraying a a gritty industrial working class um, spacecraft with just workers, really, on this craft they're not scientists they're not explorers they're not you know captains or anything they're just normal in inverted commas uh people but uh and what's also interesting is the making of this movie the fact that it was only a million dollars the the amount of cinema they could achieve with that amount of money is is phenomenal and the amount of cost cutting and and ways around doing things and and well, the the concept of having drones or, or robots, droids being part of sci-fi, surely this was very influential in, in that respect as well. So despite my, my actual dislike to watching this movie, I think it's important that people should watch it in, in terms of like historical sci-fi and, and, and where it began. Yeah. So... I would actually release this with with warnings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think this is the perfect movie for The Coin of Fate, to be honest. Oh, yes. I really do. Oh, yes. Yes. Let's do it. The Coin of Fate. Okay, Dan. Heads or tails? Oh, maybe you should choose this time. I'll go for heads. Okay. Oh, Ooh, it's tails. It's tails. <laughs> so you've won. Well done. Well, go see it with warnings, people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I think it's probably the right result. I think people would be scandalized if we put Silent Running back into the Ubiet. I mean, considering some of the dross that's down there. Mm. Well, thanks, Matt Fisher, for suggesting this film. Yeah. And uh, off you go, Silent Running. Fly free. I'm up to romp in my garden. Bye.
I feel like there should be a Joan Baez song behind (laughs) the release. (laughs) No. (laughs) Lots of really, really sort of aggressive vibrato. (laughs) Okay, Conrad, what are we doing next time? Well, next time we are still doing something that's sort of science fiction-y and post-apocalyptic-y, but we are moving to the 1980s and... To your home country, in ah. fact, because we will be watching the 1985 science fiction thriller, The Quiet Earth. Oh, okay. I wonder if this is going to be a post-viral outbreak movie. <laughs> Ooh, I wonder. Yeah, I don't know much about it. All I don't I know, know anything about it. It's a man alone in the landscape kind of deal. So a little bit like uh, Night of the Comet, but uh, less shopping. There's definitely no shops in New Zealand in the <laughs> 80s. <laughs> <laughs> no, you said that there weren't any malls really or, or nothing that could uh, really dignify the name. <laughs> maybe maybe shopping at Dicker and farmers <laughs> only new zealanders will know what, what i'm talking about <laughs> i know i do not know these brands but the same thing happens here too i remember when i went to university and there were a couple of my new housemates from up north talking mm-hmm. about this shop that they went to called morrison's and i'm sat there thinking what the hell's morrison's <laughs> and turns out even from one region to another there are different shops oh, which right. was uh, amazing to me wow (laughs) (laughs) so this will only be the second time we've done a film from new zealand is that right we did black sheep was there anything else i don't think we have done another one yeah wow no about time so there we go yeah it is time and it's also about time that we had a uh, very special special guest one of our favorite returning guests so look forward to that Mm -hmm, mm mm-hmm And if you do want to keep up to date with our releases, follow us on all our social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Movie Oubliette. Indeed. And if you would like to support the show, head on over to Patreon, where for as little as a dollar, you can nominate and vote on films that will appear in our next episodes, including Silent Running, for example, which was suggested by Matt Fisher. And for $5, you get access to our exclusive minisodes where we talk about a new film. Our next one will be focusing on the Fear Street movie. So, yeah, uh-huh. that'll be yes, exciting. Yes, yes, yes. And we do have merchandise now. Head on over to Redbubble to buy a limited edition, but really not. No. Movie <laughs> Oubliette. <laughs> There's loads of them. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bottomless supply. <laughs> <laughs> well, why not buy 10 mugs then? Yeah. I know, I keep buying merch, it's so bad. (laughs) And if you would like to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever other platform you're using to listen to us, just like Patrick did, then please do, because it really helps us out. It raises awareness and it makes us feel incredibly proud. So thank Mm -hmm, you, please mm -hmm, do. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If you haven't checked out our streams on Iconicon, please check them out. There's a great one that Conrad helped co-host talking to Bruce Broughton and the guys from La La Land. Very fascinating. Yeah. Talking about film scores and the industry. I was captivated throughout. Yeah. And at one point, Bruce plays the piano. So if you've always Uh, wanted to see... The composer of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and Monster Squad play piano live on a live stream. Check it out. Yeah, yeah. 
another stream I wanted to mention, there's a really great one where um, the topic is 80s costumes. Oh, yeah. And uh, one of the panelists is a Transformer. It's RC from Cybertronic Spree, the Transformer-themed rock band that I didn't know existed, and now I do. Yes, and I can't get enough of them. They're great. Yeah. They really are. <laughs> yeah, so check that out. All of the panels, there's a playlist on iconicononline.com and you can check out all of the live streams that happened during those five crazy days. It was really exciting. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. take a look. Yes. Okay, listeners, tune in next time. Bye for now. Goodbye. <laughs>